Father, we thank you on such a beautiful day for being our creator, but also being our redeemer. And Lord, we ask that you would also be our teacher this evening. Help us uh, think well on these items in your scripture and help us understand the promises that you have for us so that we may live sanctified lives and be more conformed to the image of your son. I ask for the saints that will be listening to this message that it would help them understand and put the parts of your scriptures together because they are the inerrant word of God. And we ask that you would speak to us then tonight through the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Last time we were together, remember I talked about the timing of the day of the Lord, and I had concluded that in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, there is where we find the timing of when the man of lawlessness is revealed, and it is tied to when the restrainer is removed, if you remember that. But we also came to the conclusion that it's very difficult to determine with certainty who the restrainer is. Therefore, it behooves us to find a different means, if we can, to determine the beginning of the day of the Lord. And so tonight is part one on the day of the Lord, and we're going to be looking at the evidence for the beginning of the broad day of the Lord. I am indebted to a man named Reynolds Showers. Reynolds Showers is a scholar who has taught me quite a bit about the day of the Lord. And obviously I've branched out into some of my own areas. However, I'm going to be laying out before you that the day of the Lord encompasses a broad day and a narrow day. We're going to be focusing on the broad day of the Lord, and I'll be explaining about that as we go. I'll show you the distinctions. But first of all, let me get into the definition, what is the day of the Lord? Now, I'm actually going to be taking a definition from a man named J. Barton Payne. He wrote a book called The Theology of the Older Testament. Now, on page 464, this is what he says about the day of the Lord. He says, It is the comprehensive phrase by which the Old Testament describes God's intervention in human history for the accomplishment of his testament, of his testament rather, is Yom Yahweh, of course, the day of Yahweh. And again, later on, he says this in this uh, page 465. He says, The day is thus characterized by an observable accomplishment of the general aims of divine providence. It refers to that point in history at which the sovereign God lays bare his holy arm on behalf of his testament and of its heirs. Of course, that would be us, whether in in a way that is specifically miraculous or not. Let me try to make it a very simple definition. The day of the Lord is where God intervenes in human history. And what you'll see, especially regarding the day of the Lord in the future, there is going to be both judgment and blessing associated with it. And I'm going to lay out the case that the judgment portion of the day of the Lord will last the entire 70th week, and then the blessing portion will enter uh, during the millennial period and on into the eternal states. So with the day of the Lord, you're always going to see both judgment and blessing. And in fact, you see this even in what I call um, rehearsal days of the Lord. And what I mean by rehearsal days of the Lord is in the Old Testament, you're going to see basically four categories of days of the Lord that are like mini days of the Lord, if you will. They're a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord that's still in our future, but they're days where God intervened to either judge um, his enemies or to rebuke and discipline his people. Okay, So let me just give you the four basic categories. For instance, we'll see... The, a day of the Lord in the sense in 722 B.C. where we had the destruction of Israel. Remember, they fell into idolatry, the northern kingdom of Samaria, and God judged them. He disciplined them because of their idolatry. We see in 586 B.C. the destruction of Judah. Some people say it's 587, whatever, 586, 587. 
We see that Babylon was to judge Assyria. He was, they were also to be used to judge Egypt. I'm going to show you a passage regarding that. And we see the Medo-Persian alliance was to one day judge Babylon. So, for instance, a lot of the enemies in the Old Testament that are enemies of God and Israel, whether it be um, Tyre or Philistia, Edom, these nations, will, they were judged and they will be judged again in the future. Okay, but these I'm going to show you some examples of many days of the Lord in the Old Testament. And this is a precursor to what we're going to see now. Amos, remember, he was a prophet that spoke to uh, Israel. He probably wrote this around 793 B.C. And if you recall, the issue back then was idolatry. Israel fell into idolatry. They had forsaken Yahweh and they were being unjust and mean spirited to the socially downtrodden. And so God was going to judge them for that. And you're going to see the Lord speak through the prophet Amos about this day where he would judge the northern kingdom by uh, Assyria. He says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. So in other words, they were expecting it would be a great thing for them. Why? Because they had an over overconfident sense that they were in fact the people of God and that God was pleased with them. Okay, why? Because they were engaged in rote religion. But in fact, God goes on, he says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings. Let justice roll down like waters. Here, because it says, let justice roll down like waters, we know that they were disobedient. But we know from the scriptures that obedience and faith are always linked, right? So why were they disobedient? Well, because they were unfaithful. And because they were unfaithful and therefore disobedient, God was going to judge them. And this is a day of Yahweh, Yom Yahweh. Okay. Now, we're going to move on to the judgment of Jerusalem, and specifically you know, the southern kingdom of Judah in 586. And remember, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. He probably wrote this shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem prior to Jeremiah the prophet going down to Egypt. Okay. And so listen to what he says as he laments the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and young men have fallen by the sword. By the way, let me stop there for a moment. You're going to see the sword used over and over and over and over of God's judgment. Okay, So whether it be on his own people or the world or the world's nations, the sword is used by God to judge in the day of the Lord. And the sword is often used by the nations, whether they be pagan nations or God, you know, the Israel, it's going to be used to judge the nations. So just you'll, you'll see how important that comes into play when we want to determine the book of Revelation, what's God's wrath and what is not God's wrath. Okay, so he continues. He says, You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. And there was no one who escaped and survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. So again, here we have another rehearsal day of the Lord, if you will, a precursor of the ultimate day of the Lord. Now here's one of God's enemies. This is of Egypt. And God would raise up the Babylonians to spank the Egyptians in Ezekiel 30, 2 through 4. God commands Ezekiel to prophesy these things. He says, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. A sword will come upon Egypt. And of course we know in 568 B.C. the Lord sends his judgment upon the Egyptians. Okay, why? Because they had hated and despised and had always 
um, tried to beat up, in some sense, the Israelites. And in, in fact, we see the same thing against Edom. Edom, remember, they're descendants of Esau. They are end up being the prototypical enemies of God, and God sends judgment upon them. So those who take part of the slaughter of God's people would partake of this day of the Lord. And again, these are all just mere rehearsal days of the future day of the Lord. So now I'm turning to the future day of the Lord, and what I want to show you is now this day that I'm referring to is an epoch, and it is still in our future. Okay, And as you're going to see, the context is clear that it's not just one nation or two nations that are being judged, as, as happened in the Old Testament, but all the nations. And so we know, therefore, that there remains a day of the Lord in our future because never in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, have all the nations been judged. Okay, and so we see an example of this, Isaiah 34, 1 through 2 in verse 8, where the Lord says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against their armies. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So there's going to be this great reversal. All those who fought against Israel and therefore God's people and his purposes He's going to turn the tables, a lot like Bob has talked about in Mishta. There's going to be a reversal. Those who were exalted in this life will be thrown down. And those who are you know, pushed upon and who are always under attack by the enemies of God, they will be exalted. And so there's going to be this great reversal. And we see the same thing. Obadiah is written as a judgment against Edom. Remember again, Edom, the descendants of Esau. Esau, the brother of Jacob. Esau... And really the Edomites, they gain notoriety in their hatred of their brother Jacob because they end up attacking during the Babylonian invasion, especially during the 586 destruction. They join in and they do these incursions and raids. And God becomes so angry that he has Obadiah predict this destruction. But what's interesting is in Obadiah 15, remember there's just one chapter, you end up seeing this destruction that's meant for Edom is really meant for all the nations that will one day come against Israel. So it branches out to all the nations. And by the way, I believe it's Isaiah either 65 or 66. There's this talk about the Lord or this messianic figure. And of course, we know it to be Jesus, how he tramples out the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath. And it says that he goes to Edom. Well, the reason why Edom is mentioned is because, again, Edom is a symbol of, it is the prototypical enemy of God. Okay, in other words, if you mention Edom, it's, all, it's akin to saying all the enemies of God. Okay, so all the enemies of God are kind of wrapped into Edom at times. So anyway, here we see again all the nations, and again, we know that has never occurred in the past, and so we know that this is in fact telling us that there will be a future day of the Lord, again, a time of judgment and blessing, blessing on those who trust in Yahweh. The twofold nature of the day of the Lord. What I want to talk about here is that we see again both judgment and blessing. So I just want to show you in Joel chapter 3. Remember, Joel, there's debate as to when it was written. I lean towards a 6th century writing. Some people believe it's in the 9th century. But in my Old Testament survey class, I'll lay out to you why I think it's 6th century. But in the book of Joel, he talks more about the day of the Lord really than anyone else in the most systematic way. And what I want you to see in this passage is there's both judgment on the enemies of God and there's blessing on Israel. Joel 3, 12 through 13b, comma, 17 through 18. So I got a lot of verses here. Joel says this, he says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now let me stop there. Jehoshaphat literally is a combination of two words, Yahweh, Shophet. 
Shofet means judge or judgment. It typically means judge in the Old Testament, and Yahweh is God. So it literally means Yahweh is judge. And I want you to think of the significance of this valley that he's bringing them. Because the world has rejected Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, what do they actually get at the end of time? Well, Yahweh is judge, okay? Well, what's interesting is there's debate as to where is the valley of Jehoshaphat. And the the debate is, is it in the valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley, or is it in the Kidron Valley just to the east of Jerusalem? I lean towards the Kidron Valley. I think this passage is synonymous with Zechariah 14, and I'll be laying that case out before you next Tuesday as I lay out the narrow day of the Lord But let me give you a little piece of evidence, a little nugget that I discovered just as I was studying this. It just came to me, and and let me explain why this came to me. My Old Testament survey course I'm going to be teaching, I'm going to talk about a little bit of the topography and geography of Israel. And it's very interesting. You and I as Minnesotans, especially me as a fisherman, I say, oh, yeah, I'm going up north. And we use going up geographically, right? I'm going up north. But realize in the scriptures, they don't use go up geographically, but topographically, you know, if I hope I'm using the right term, you know what I'm saying? You're going up in elevation, right? So the idea is you're going up, not that you're going north, but this denotes that you're going up in elevation. Well, certainly Jezreel is very low in elevation, right? The Jezreel Valley. But what is kind of elevated? Well, people go up to Jerusalem, don't they? It's, it's higher up. It's high in elevation. That's why people always say they're going up to Jerusalem. And so I think that gives credence more to the idea that it's the Kidron Valley. And that's just to the east of Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 14, you'll see all the nations gathered to Jerusalem. And I think that's where the Valley of Judgment will ultimately happen. Jesus will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. He'll destroy the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming. And he'll enter into judgment as a warrior fights in the day of battle, as it says in Zechariah 14. So let's continue. It says, For there I will sit to, uh, sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Come tread, for the winepress is full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord. So obviously you see blessing down here. Strangers will pass through it no more. But up here all the nations were judged. And so you saw judgment in the beginning and blessing in the, the second portion. So again, you see the twofold nature to the day of the Lord. Now, beyond the twofold nature, I also want to talk about this double sense of the day of the Lord. Namely, that we have the broad day of the Lord and the narrow day of the Lord. And I'm going to be making the case to you that I believe the broad day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the 70th week. And I'll show you the evidence for that tonight, and that it extends all the way into eternity. Jim and I were just talking about this before class, and according to 2 Peter 3, there's evidence that the day of the Lord extends really on into eternity. And so when does the day of the Lord end? Well, we'll be able to ask Jesus that, because we'll be with him while it's going on for sure. But good evidence is that it never ends because God is always intervening in some sense on our behalf. We'll always be with him. But the biggest issue is when does it begin? That's really what we want to discuss here. So again, I believe it happens at the beginning of the 70th week and extends on into eternity. Good evidence is for that. Now, the narrow day of the Lord, that is, the day of the Lord in some sense is a 24-hour day. It is the day that the Messiah comes in. And for the first time in human history, and the only day that this will ever happen is that God will fight as 
the hypostatic union as the God-man. He will set his foot on the Mount of Olives and he will fight for Israel, as it says again in Zechariah 14. I believe that happens at the end of the 70th week. And this is the day of the Lord par excellence. It is a 24-hour period where God will fight personally for his people. What's ironic, it's interesting. Notice from the beginning of the 70th week until the end, you have judgment, right? And then from the 70th week, the end of it onward, you have blessing. And so remember the dual nature of the, the day of the Lord. We really have the judgment, the 70th week, and then we have blessing. That's how it seems to work out. Now, I'm going to be laying evidence for the narrow day of the Lord, and I'm going to tie Joel 3, Zechariah 14, and Revelation 19 together next week and show you that I believe that that happens on a single day, and that's the day that Jesus comes back to smite his enemies in the Kidron Valley. That's where it will culminate. Now, regarding the double sense of the day of the Lord, let me give you a quote. This comes from a man named A.B. Davidson. He wrote The Theology of the Old Testament, On page 381, talking about the day of the Lord, he says, Though the day of the Lord, as the expression implies, was at first conceived as a definite and brief period of time, being an era of judgment and salvation, it many times broadened out to be an extended period. From being a day, it became an epoch. And the reason I'm pointing that out is that's the view that I'm developing. I I never really dwelled on it until this past year that much. But what's interesting is the day of the Lord, let me say it this way, You know, if I ask my grandpa, what was gas like back in your day? What I'm not asking him is I'm not asking him March 5th, 1931. I'm just talking about his general, the the time period when he was young and gas was cheap, right? He'd say, oh, yeah, you know, in my day, we get it for five cents. You know, he'd say something like that. But now, I, I remember just a few months ago, I brought him to his haircut and I said, do you remember the day John Kennedy was shot? And he knows I'm not talking about an epic, I'm talking about one day. And he remembers, he was, he was a construction worker and he was working at a mall. So the point is, is we, you and I use day differently. We use it for a 24-hour period and we use it for a broad period of time. And the same thing applies in the Old Testament. So now we're going to be focusing on the broad day. And I want to talk about the beginning of the broad day of the Lord. And what I want to do is I want to use 1 Thessalonians 5.3 as the evidence of when the day of the Lord begins. But I want to tie it into the rapture and the discussion of the rapture. In other words, we're going to get into the rapture later on in our course, but I want to show you how the rapture is tied to the day of the Lord. So let me just do that briefly. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 through 5, 3, Paul writes this. He says, Then we who are alive, and he's talking about the rapture now, and remain will be caught up together with them, that is the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, notice this now concerning. That is the, the phrase peri day. And remember I had referenced this in our Matthew 24 discussion, how Paul uses peri day. And Bob actually has a whole handout. In fact, we should bring that next time, the handout. Well, I, I think I've got a copy. Bob has a whole handout on peri day and how it's used. He did all this research and shows you how it's used. But the way Paul uses it is it's always a shift in topic. But yet it's related, at least tangentially, to what he had previously said. So he's, he's switching topics, but there's a, related, there's a related element to it. Are you with me? Okay. The reason why that's important is it shows some distinction between the rapture and the day of the Lord. That's the only reason I'm mentioning it. Okay. So Perry Day is extremely significant, translated now concerning. So now concerning the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. I'm sorry, I went by what I wanted to 
talked about. See where I have it circled here? Notice he says, you have no need of anything written to you. Very interesting. This, again, is another indicator that the day of the Lord is separate from the rapture. Why? Well, turn, if you will, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It's going to point something out. Uh, regarding the rapture, remember the issue was those in Thessalonica were concerned about their dead relatives, that they wouldn't make the, the rapture because they were dead already. And Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, But we do not want you uninformed, to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So it's interesting, there were some things about the rapture they were not informed about. But yet, when it comes to the day of the Lord, he says, you have no need of anything written to you. In other words, he'd already instructed them on that. Okay? Again, I know it's, a, it's kind of a slight clue, but it shows, I think, another distinction between the rapture, they needed more instruction on that, and the day of the Lord, which they fully knew. Okay? Another little indicator that they're not synonymous. Okay? So anyway, now let me keep moving on then. I think I ended here. We'll come just like a thief in the night. Then he says, while they are saying peace and safety... Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this passage again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3 as reference. But what I'm going to do is on my handy-dandy timeline here, again, that's always the 70th week anytime you see that, right? I'm going to show you the different views of pre-wrath, uh, post-trib, and pre-trib of when we believe that the broad day of the Lord begins. Let me start with the pre-wrath view. The pre-wrath view, again, they believe that the Antichrist sets himself up at the middle. We all, I think everybody affirms that. But sometime in this last three and a half years, they believe that the rapture occurs and the very day of the rapture enters the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will extend on then into eternity. Okay? So the day of the Lord, remember, they're saying there's no wrath of God present during the 70th week prior to the day of the Lord. So all of this here that I'm pointing to in the beginning of the 70th week until the day of the Lord, there's no wrath according to the pre-wrath view. Okay? Now, the post-trib view typically believes that the day of the Lord starts at the end of the 70th week and then extends on into eternity. Now, some post-tribbers believe that it actually begins at the middle portion because that's the Great Tribulation. So there's some debate about that between the post-tribbers. But most pre-trib scholars, and this is what I'm going to be teaching you, we believe that the... Day of the Lord, that is the broad day, starts at the beginning of the 70th week and it extends again all the way into eternity. Now, I'm going to give you four pieces of evidence that I'm going to lay out before you that will, in fact, help us you know, prove that point. The number one and the least significant, in my opinion, so I won't even be covering this other than mentioning it here, is that notice Paul says that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It comes without warning. Now remember, let me just say a few things about this. Within the 70th week, we do have data. In other words, the book of Revelation, I believe, from Revelation 6 on, is about the 70th week. And even pre-wrath scholars would agree with that. We do have data about what transpires within the 70th week. Okay, why is that important? Well, because we don't have any data what happens out here. The point being is the 70th week, I believe, comes without warning. In other words, without precursor. Okay, Now, the pre-wrath scholars are saying that there are these cosmic events that we'll talk about next week that occur before the day of the Lord. Well, aren't cosmic events a precursor? Well, certainly they are. Well, then how can it happen without warning? So what I'm just saying is I think it's best to see the 70th week as it breaks onto the scene. That's where the day of the Lord starts because it comes without warning. 
Okay. Now, the three big pieces of evidence, though, that I see that are devastating is that, notice, Paul says the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. I'm going to be laying out to you really a, almost a technical discussion on what peace and safety, or I should say how peace and safety is defined in the Old Testament. Okay, It's going to be the absence of sword, famine, pestilence, and beasts. If you have those things, you don't have peace. If you're rid of those things, you have peace. And, and you'll be amazed at how much discussion there is actually in the Old Testament about those things. The third piece of evidence is that the day of the Lord comes upon the world like labor pains. And I'm going to show you some amazing parallels between labor pains and the beginning of the day of the Lord. And so that, that we see right here. But we also see that the day of the Lord will in fact be consistent with Yahweh's eschatological wrath. And I will prove that this wrath is present at the beginning of the 70th week. In fact, we see that in this passage right here. It comes with destruction. And that is, in fact, Yahweh's destruction. So these are the big pieces of evidence that I'll lay out before you showing that the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week. So let's start with peace and safety. And I'm going to show you the technical definition of the removal of peace and safety. What is it that is taken away so that you don't have peace and safety? And I'll be getting into that first. So 1 Thessalonians 5.3, again, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Now let me remind you, the second seal in Revelation 6.4, John wrote this, he says, And another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword. Notice the sword here was given to him. Okay? So again, we have the Lord declaring that peace has been withdrawn at the second seal. And even all the, the pre-wrath scholars, I know Marv Rosenthal, Ryan Habanaugh, Van Campen, the ones that I've read and know, they all believe that the second seal happens within the first three and a half years of the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. Okay, And if that's true, if we all agree on it, well, then we have to all agree that, yes, the Lord has taken peace away And I think it fits very nicely with saying that the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week because that's where they could truly be saying peace and safety. Because why? The second seal happens right in the beginning of the 70th week. Are you with me? Well, then when we come to the third seal, we see there's scarcity. Why? Because there's famine. And you're going to see that famine often follows the sword. In other words, warfare. If you have warfare, you'll end up having famine. And then when we come to the fourth seal in Revelation 6-8, John says this. He says, I look and behold... An ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades. So here, Death and Hades is being personified um, with these horses. It It was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts. Now, remember this passage, and I'm going to keep coming to it and coming to it. Remember the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and the wild beasts you're going to see over and over and over in the Old Testament that if you have those things present, you have no peace and safety. If those things are removed, you have peace and safety. Why is that significant? Because they're present in the fourth seal. And a very good case can be made that the fourth seal occurs in the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Well, therefore, you have a technical definition that for sure you don't have peace and safety, and therefore no one could claim to have peace and safety after the fourth seal. Are you with me? And I'll I'll keep hitting that as we go. So now let me show you in the Old Testament 
Oh, and again, I just want to reiterate, I'm pointing, pointing to this great sword. Again, you're going to see sword is always prevalent in all these judgments. Okay, so again, why is that significant? Because that happens as, as early as the second seal, indicating that God's wrath, I believe, is poured out very, very, very early, right at the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, now let me give you the definition. What constitutes peace and safety? Well, let's turn to the Old Testament. And interesting, we can go all the way back to the Pentateuch, where in Leviticus 26, 5 through 6, it is explained what actually brings peace and safety. Well, it's predicated on the faithful obedience of God's people, their faithfulness. And this is what the Lord says to Israel. He says, Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will, uh, will until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. So remember, eating their food is the opposite of what? It's the opposite of famine. Okay, and then he goes on. He says, I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. Now remember, these are three elements that we saw prevalent or present, I should say, in Revelation 6, 8. Remember, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Well, they have three of them present here, okay? Or I should say three of them aren't present here, and therefore what do they have? They have peace, okay? So you have, if, you, if you have peace, what God is saying is you won't have sword, you won't have harmful beasts attacking you, and you won't have famine, okay? And again, I think that that gives us evidence that, well, in Revelation 6, 8, those things are present. They don't have peace, and therefore why can people be claiming peace and safety? Uh, Hosea 2.18, it says, In that day I will also make a covenant for them, this is the great promise still in the future, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. So now we have peace and safety, and again, it's the absence of sword and beast, two of the elements that we saw present in Revelation 6.8. Now let me keep going. What constitutes peace and safety? Let me show you one from Ezekiel 34, 25 through 29, talking about the new covenant. God brings peace to Israel. And listen, what won't be present to them? He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely. I will cause showers to come down in their season, which is obviously indicating that they want to have famine, right? Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will live secure in their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. They will no longer be prey to the nations. In other words, they'll no longer have war or the sword, right? And the beasts of the earth will not devour them. I will establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. So again, if they're going to have peace, they can't have beasts, they can't have sword or fall prey to the nations, and they won't have famine. Again, three of the elements that we see present in Revelation 6.8. Now, what are the means by which God takes away peace? Well, interestingly enough, it'll be sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Okay, It's nothing earth-shattering. I, wish I, I feel almost... I've, it's kind of redundant, but nonetheless, let's show you. Jeremiah 14, remember the context of Jeremiah. God is pouring his judgment upon Jerusalem, upon Judah for their idolatry. And so here it's even coming upon God's people. In Jeremiah 14, 12 through 13, the prophet says, When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Now here the prophet interjects. He says, But ah, oh, ah, 
Lord God. I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you see famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. So the false prophets, they were saying, no, you guys are fine. Yahweh isn't angry with you. You guys have been nothing but splendid, and we're going to have peace, peace, safety, peace, and safety. Well, what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3? That destruction comes, that is the day of the Lord, while they're saying peace and safety. And the same thing was going on in the days of the destruction of Judah. The false prophets were saying peace and safety. Okay, And what happened? Sword, famine, pestilence, it all came upon them. Well, what happens in Revelation 6, 8? Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast. So what do you have a lack of in Revelation 6, 8? You have a lack of peace and safety. Okay, And so therefore, you must conclude that the day of the Lord must start before that. Because while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Remember, sword, the first portion, which is always the first portion of God's judgment, happens in the second seal. Okay? So again, let me show you another passage. It's just overwhelming how many times this is repeated. I'm just giving you, you know, I'm not giving you all of these. I'm giving you the ones that I know of that I had time to put in here. Jeremiah 16, 4 through 5. Jeremiah, again, about the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. He says, they will die of deadly diseases. There you have pestilence. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by the sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. So again, you have sword, famine, pestilence, and beasts, the very four items that you have in Revelation 6, 8. Why? Because they have no peace. And remember, Jesus says um, when he laments over Jerusalem, if you had known what brought for you, you, your peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And so the world, friends, will be crying peace and safety and sudden destruction will come upon them. And so again, Revelation 6, 8, we know that the day of the Lord must be present then. And the pre-wrath says no. The day of the Lord does not come until the seventh seal. Well, we know it must be present at least by the fourth seal. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis. Then we're going to talk about the day of the Lord also starts like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Let me give you a little bit of a review Remember in Matthew 24, 5, Jesus talks about that there would be many false Christs and that they would come in his name, okay? Matthew 24, 6 through 7, he said that there would be wars and rumors of wars. Matthew 24, 7b, he said there would be famines and earthquakes. In Matthew 24, 8, he said, these are the beginning of labor pains, okay? Now what's interesting is even the pre-wrath agrees that what is talked about by Jesus here happens in the beginning of the 70th week, in the first three and a half years. Well, let me show you an interesting connection. In Revelation, again, 6, 1 through 2, we see that the Antichrist in Jesus' name, right? We see that we have wars, just like Jesus warned. We see that we have famines. We also have pestilence and other things, but there's earthquakes too here. But there's a great correlation between the two. And it's interesting what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. He says, while they're saying, again, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. Well, isn't that interesting? Paul is saying, the, and he's using, in fact, the same word, Odin, labor pains, that Jesus is talking about here. And I'm going to show you that these labor pains is a technical term that has to do with what transpires in the world during the day of the Lord. So if you want to know when the day of the Lord starts, you want to know where the labor pains are, okay? And what's interesting, even the pre-wrath scholars like Ryan Habenau, again, I know uh, Rosenthal, I know Robert Van Campen, they believe that all the things here listed in Matthew 25, 24, 5 through 8 happen in the beginning of the 70th week, 
And so they're agreeing that the beginning of the 70th week is where we see the beginning of labor pains. Well, what's interesting is they never seem to make the connection that these labor pains are connected to what? The day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety, destruction then will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. Okay? Now what's more, I just proved to you that the absence of peace and safety occurs where? It occurs here. And it occurs in Revelation. Remember, in Revelation 6.3, we had the sword. Okay, and the sword is always associated with what? God's judgment. And then in Revelation 6, 8, we had sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. So certainly it is the absence of peace and safety during this time. And this time is identical to what Jesus is talking about here. And those are the beginning of labor pains. Okay, and if they're the beginning of the labor pains, and all of us agree that this happens at the beginning of the 70th week, then why should we not see if the labor pains that is here and here are associated with the day of the Lord, we must therefore conclude that the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week. Are you with me? And that's the case that I'm going to lay out here now. So let's talk about these birth pains. And by the way, I'm going to use birth pains, labor pains. I'll use a lot of these things synonymously. It's the same thing, pains sometimes. But it all has to it comes from the Greek Odin. Odin is the technical term that's used in both the Septuagint and also in the Greek New Testament in Matthew 24, 8 in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, okay? So let me talk to you a little bit about some extra-biblical writings because I want to show you that the Jews believe that these pains, these labor pains would come upon the world and that they would last seven years. And if they last seven years, then we should see that the whole 70th week is the day of the Lord because I'm going to show you that the day of the Lord is synonymous with labor pains, okay? So this is what the Apocalypse of Abraham states. And the Apocalypse of Abraham is what's called a pseudepigraphical work. It is a work that someone takes... Um, a godly biblical character, they put their name on it. You know, in other words, Abraham. They sign his name to it and then they write it. Okay? But this is Jewish thought. This is kind of um, how they understand the scriptures. And this is written between 70 and 100 AD, slightly after the destruction of the temple. So in the Apocalypse of Abraham, you can at least see what the Jews were thinking about these birth pangs related to the Messiah. It says on page 95 through 96, it says, quote, The pains of the messianic times are imagined as having heavenly as well as earthly sources and expressions from above. Awesome cosmic cataclysms, cataclysms will be visited upon the earth. Uh, conflagrations, pestilence, famine, earthquakes, hail and snow, thunder and lightning, these will be paralleled by evils brought by men. This will last how long? Seven years. So they understood the birth pains to be seven years, and that would correspond nicely to the view that labor pains began at the beginning of the 70th week and therefore the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the 70th week as well. The Babylonian Talmud, in a section called the Sanhedrin in 97a, it says, Our rabbis taught in the seven-year cycle at the end of which the son of David will come at the conclusion of the, of the septennate, the son of David will come. So again, it just shows you in two places they believe that there would be a seven-year cycle. They were concerned about wrath as well for seven years and at the end the, the son of David would come. Now remember, the pre-trib position, we believe that the Son of David comes at the end of the 70th week, don't we? We just believe that he first comes for the church at the beginning of the 70th week, but ultimately he comes for Israel and really with us uh, and for all people to bring his kingdom at the end of the 70th week. So there would be no contradiction with our view there. Here is a book written in 1997 by Raphael Patai called The Messianic Text. I think I uh, butchered that a little bit. I think it's actually The Messiah Text. 
I, I may be wrong, but I think it's the Messiah text. Anyway, he says this on page 95 and 96. He says, The idea became entrenched that the coming of the Messiah will be preceded by greatly increased suffering. This will last seven years. So again, I'm just showing you over and over and over that the Jews understood that this great suffering would last seven years, not just three and a half or not just a portion of the three and a half years at the end. Okay. Now, remember, all of these sources are fallible. And what we want to do now is turn towards the infallible Word of God. That's what actually matters. But let's see if the Word of God is saying the same thing. Let's see if these guys are understanding the Scriptures correctly. So let's turn to Isaiah 13, 6 through 9. And remember, in the original context here, Isaiah is talking about, he's talking about the pronouncement of judgment upon Babylon. But it, it goes from talking about judgment upon Babylon, and it immediately goes to the judgment of the entire world. So in context the entire world is going to experience this day of the Lord. Okay, and I'll prove that to you. I'll read another passage that we don't even have here. So Isaiah 13, 6 through 9, Isaiah says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains, and what I want to point out that is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you're reading the Septuagint, you would have Odin. Odin is right here, right in this section here. Now, what is Odin? Well, it's birth pains, labor pains. And where did we see that? We saw Matthew 24, 8. Jesus said these are the beginning of Odin, labor pains. First Thessalonians 5, 3, destruction comes upon them like labor pains, Odin. Okay. So what I'm doing is I'm connecting labor pains to the day of the Lord. If you have labor pains, you have the day of the Lord. Jesus says the beginning of the 70th week has labor pains. Therefore, the beginning of the 70th week has what? The day of the Lord. That's the logic. So pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. Again, this idea of labor pains. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Now, just to prove that this, in fact, encapsulates the whole world, let me just read you verse 11 and 12 as well. Isaiah uh, 13, the Lord continues, says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And by the way, it's a great passage to bring up when you're uh, presenting the gospel because it shows you that there's a day that God is going to judge the world. So Isaiah 13:11, He says, I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. So literally, it is mankind will be made scarce. And so it's a worldwide phenomenon. And so what I want you to see is notice the day of the Lord is mentioned early in other words, before Odin and actually after. So certainly the day of the Lord is associated. And remember, it's a technical term being used here. And it's the same term Jesus and Paul are using. Odin is associated with the day of the Lord. Okay, now let me talk about labor pains during the Babylonian invasion. And you're going to see the very same Greek term used. And remember, Jeremiah here in context, to be fair, he's talking about the day of the Lord that comes upon Judah, specifically Jerusalem, by the Babylonians. But remember... In prophecy, what happens in the past will happen again in the future. So this, again, is a snapshot of what we're going to see in the ultimate day of the Lord. Okay. So Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 6, 22 through 24, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north, the northland. And by the way, some liberal scholars will try to claim that those who come from the north are Scythians. I actually did a whole paper in seminary about this. It's not the Scythians, it's the Babylonians, okay? And it has to do with the misreading of Herodotus. They, under, they misunderstand Herodotus, and therefore they think it's the Scythians. It's actually the Babylonians, and we can prove that. So the Babylonians are the ones that are being referred to as coming from the north. 
And he says, And a great nation will be aroused. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. So again, God uses means. He uses even evil nations, doesn't he, for his purposes. He says, We have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of woman in childbirth. Now notice this term anguish. From the Greek, it's actually in the Septuagint, it's thlipsis. That's our term that we get for tribulation. Okay, And then notice this phrase here, as a woman in childbirth. Again, if you're reading the Greek translation, the Septuagint, Odin is used. Okay, And again, labor pains. That's the same term again that Jesus used, Matthew 24, 8, and Paul uses 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Okay? Now let me give you one more for the road here with the birth pain. Zephaniah 1, 14, really through 18. And 18 confirms that this is a worldwide judgment Zephaniah writes, he says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, A day of wrath is that day. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured. This term distress in Hebrew is sarer. That's how you would say it, sarer. And it's what's called a hiphiel. That means it's causative. So God will be doing the causing. It's first person. So we know God is causing this, and therefore it's his wrath. But what's interesting is the definition of this verb. Its, um, its meaning is to give birth or be in labor with a focus on the pain and distress of the process. So again, it's synonymous with the Greek term Odin in meaning. And who does this? Well, God does. And therefore we should see this is God's wrath. Okay? Even if he uses bad or evil nations, even if he uses Satan, God is using it for his purposes. Okay, and so whose wrath is it? Well, it's his. And it happens while people are saying peace and safety, we know from 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, we know it happens like labor pains, like the distress. And so again, the distress, that is the labor pains, happen during the day of the Lord's wrath. Okay? So let me just recap again. Matthew 24, 4 through 8. Matthew 24, 5 says, In my name... Remember that there would be false Christ that would come in Jesus' name. There would be wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24, 6 through 7. Matthew 24, 7b says that there would be famines. And then Jesus said all these things are like labor pains. Okay, now, I just want to show you a quote from Ryan Habana. And by the way, when I use Ryan's name, Ryan gets a lot right. And we agree on 99.9% of things. And I've learned more from Ryan than he's ever learned from me. Okay, so I just want to say Ryan is okay in my book, and we may disagree on these issues, but these are nothing to divide over. We're just talking about the timing of the rapture. Salvation's not at stake, but I'm just going to give you the best biblical data that I can. But I want to show you what we agree with and don't agree. And I just want to show you that um, Ryan agrees that the labor pains really are synonymous with what happens during the beginning of the 70th week. And so he says on page 53 of his book, The Parable of the Fig Tree, Jesus described to us in very clear detail the signs that will signal the end of the age. These beginning of birth pains, that's what he's referring to here, are the rising of false Christ, war, earthquakes, and famine. And what's interesting is he agrees that these all occur at the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, so does Marv Rosenthal. So does Robert Van Campen. So this period certainly happens during the beginning of the 70th week, and therefore I think we can conclude that that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Why? Well, because of the labor pains. Labor pains are associated with the day of the Lord. That's the whole point. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them like what? Like Odin, labor pains upon a woman with child. And again, 
we saw in Isaiah 13:8, Jeremiah 6:24, and Zephaniah 1:14 through 18 that the labor pains are synonymous with the day of the Lord. Therefore, I think we must conclude that the day of the Lord encompasses the first portion of the 70th week. That's how I would read that data. Okay. Now, they would disagree with us, but I, I think that's the best understanding of, of the data. Okay. Now, let's move on to God's eschatological wrath. And all we're going to be arguing about here is when does wrath occur? And I want to show you the pre-wrath view. Then I'm going to show you our view. And again, I think, and I mean our view, I'm, I'm not being paid by the pre-trib foundation, by the way. I have no dog in the race or go-kart in the show or whatever. I don't really care. I just think that the data best supports the pre-trib position. Okay, so let me just show you the pre-wrath side so we can interact with it. Again, regarding the fifth seal, Ryan says this in his book on page 65. He says, God's wrath upon the world has not begun at this time. That is the fifth seal. As the martyrs are asking how long until the sovereign Lord deals out retribution. So what I want you to see is in the pre-wrath position, remember, they believe that the great tribulation occurs like we would at the beginning. That is the great, remember, this is tribulation and this is great tribulation from the midpoint, right? Is everybody with me? Well, they believe that there's no wrath that occurs until the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will happen sometime in the last three and a half years. Okay? So again, the pre-wrath position is that God's wrath starts during the seventh seal. So remember, everything this direction, there's no wrath. Okay? In the pre-wrath position, only from the seventh seal onward during the day of the Lord, because that's when they believe the day of the Lord starts, is wrath. So all we have to do to disprove the view is to show that there's wrath present before the seventh seal. Are you with me? And that's what I'm going to do regarding the fourth seal. Now, I believe the fourth seal happens in the first three and a half years. Ryan believes the fourth seal happens during the Great Tribulation, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because he still believes that even during the Great Tribulation, you don't have the wrath of God. Okay, are you with me? So I don't even have to prove when the fourth seal happens. All I have to do is prove that there's wrath present during the fourth seal. And to be honest with you, then if I can do that, the pre-wrath view is done because by definition, pre-wrath means being raptured prior to the wrath of God. That's By definition, that's what the movement's about. So if we can prove the wrath of God happens before, before the seventh seal, then I think game, set, match. Okay, And I think I can do that. So the pre-trib's case is that God's wrath is present in the first half of the tribulation. I think we can say that safely in this portion. Okay, Now let me do that. The wrath of God in the fourth seal. Let me read to you again Revelation 6, 8 where John said, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Now, let me show you how the pre-wrath position understands this passage. And let me give you a forewarning. They understand the wild beast here is not referring to animals, but as to the Antichrist. Okay, that is the position of the, at least of Ryan. That's how Ryan would understand this passage. Now, why would they want the wild beast? Now, I'm just saying, if you have a scheme, why would they want the wild beast to be the Antichrist rather than animals? Because what they want to do is they want to believe that this is the wrath of Antichrist, not the wrath of God. Okay, and so what they're going to do, and let me just show you the quote to show you that I'm not just making this up. Ryan Habanaugh says on page 64 of his book, he says, in light of the parallels to the Olivet Discourse, I believe the best reading of this fourth seal is the authority given to the Antichrist to make war with the people of God. Sword, famine, and pestilence are the means the beasts use to make war. So he's linking the beasts here to the Antichrist. That's right here, right? And so here's the question. Are the wild beasts, are they animals, or are they the Antichrist? 
Okay, and I'm going to prove to you, I think, conclusively that they are, in fact, animals. All right? But now notice something that I think we have to address here as well. Notice he says that the Antichrist, the authority was given to the Antichrist. Is that really true? Well, remember, the authority was given to them, and the them here is autois in Greek. Now, what we have to do is ask, well, who is the them? <laughs> doesn't sound right, does it? Who is the them? Okay, but nonetheless, that's what we have to decide. And I'm saying is typically when you have a pronoun like that, it's referring to something in the antecedent, something prior. And so naturally it would be logical to say that it must be death in Hades. Authority was given to them, not to the wild beasts. And yet Ryan is claiming in his book that, in fact, the wild beasts were given the authority. So first of all, I think that he's wrong on that account. Now, let's move on to talk about the wild beasts. And again, I'm just going to put this up there for reference And Ryan, in his case that he makes, he claims, and he's right on this, by the way, that therion, the term that's used for beast in Revelation, is used 38 times. It's actually used 39 times, but 38 times, without question, it's used of the Antichrist and the prophet. Okay, But what he doesn't point out, which is extremely significant, which needs to be pointed out, and it's not in the book, is that in every single case, in the 38 times Therion is used, it's always in the singular. But when we get to verse 8 that we're dealing with in Revelation 6, 8, the beast right here, it's in the plural. Okay, That's a major clue, and it's a major whoopsie if we don't point that out because it's a good indication that we're talking about animals. Okay, Now there's another clue. Notice this phrase where it says, of the earth. The phrase really, literally is Therion tes geis. It means the beasts of the earth. That phrase is used four times in the Greek Septuagint. That is, in other words, it's used four times in the Old Testament in the Greek, if you, if you were in the Greek Septuagint. Every time it's used, it's used of wild animals. Therion, tes, geis. Okay? Um, so here's the other point. What he tries to do is he tries to claim, again, that the Antichrist is the beast. Well, the problem is the beast in Revelation 13.1 comes not from the earth, but from the sea. Okay, now the false prophet in Revelation thirteen eleven he comes from the earth, but remember then if if you're going to maintain remember there's plural, you would be giving if if you're going to maintain that these are the this beast is a reference to the antichrist and the prophet, you would be giving priority to the false prophet. Why? Because he's the one that comes out of the earth. Do you see what I'm getting at? But the priority goes to the antichrist. He's the head of the the prophet, right? The false prophet, and he comes out of the sea. Okay, so in other words, it doesn't make sense. And by the way, the false prophet doesn't come onto the scene until Revelation 13, where we know the Antichrist comes right in the beginning of the 70th week. So certainly the beast can't be plural because not all of them come onto the scene at once. And so most naturally, we should take the beast plural, again, the only time it's used in the plural, as referring to animals that come from the, from the earth. And that's how it's used in the Old Testament. And what's more, what's not mentioned in the book and what I think is really devastating is that this is more than likely a quote from Ezekiel 14.21. And I'm going to put 19 on there to show you that it's God's wrath. Now, let me just mention something. And by the way, I goofed this up last time. I was telling somebody here, according to a man who did some, his name is, I think, Barclay Sweet, he did some studies in the, the book of Revelation, and he found that there's 404 verses. I had 278 verses. It's 404 verses with 278 either quotations or allusions 
to the Old Testament. So out of the 404 verses that comprise the book of Revelation, there's 278 references to the Old Testament. So John is heavily engaged in teaching doctrine from the Old Testament, and we see the same thing here. And he's actually quoting almost verbatim what Ezekiel is saying here in Ezekiel 14, 14, 19 through 21. So let me read that passage. Ezekiel said, this is the Lord speaking, he says, I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath. So again, it's God's wrath that we see in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem? What do we have? Well, we have sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague or pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Well, those are the identical things that are here. And again, that shows us that it is in fact God's wrath not the Antichrist, right? And we should also therefore see that the beasts here are in fact the same as the beasts here, okay? And in fact, in the Greek Septuagint, in Ezekiel 14.21, there is the same term that's used here. It's a, it's a plural form, theria. It's accusative, but here it's plural also, but it's just in the genitive is all. So in other words, it's the same, it's the same word, atherion. It's the Greek term for beasts. So you have this great correlation. So the point is, friends, the beasts are animals. It's not the Antichrist, okay? And therefore, this is not about the wrath of the Antichrist, but rather it's about the wrath of God. Time and time again, we see sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts are the means by which God poured his wrath upon the earth. Time and time again. The book of Revelation uses the Old Testament 278 times. Should we not then consider that when we see these same things prevalent, or present in Revelation 6, 8, that in fact that's the wrath of God. Okay, And what's more, we see it also in Ezekiel 5, 13 through, 5, uh, through 17. Let me just read that to you. Again, the Lord says, Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath. Again, it's God's wrath. It's not anyone else's wrath on them. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes. Moreover, I will send on you famine, and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague, that's the same thing as pestilence, and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, twice we see that it's God's wrath when the sword, the famine, the plague, and the wild beasts come. So again, the view that the pre-wrath has is that there is no wrath during this period, right? There's no wrath. But what I've just showed you is that during the fourth seal there is wrath, and more than likely the fourth seal happens in the first three and a half years. But even if it occurs during the Great Tribulation, again, the pre-wrath position is that there's no wrath even during the Great Tribulation, and certainly even the pre-wrath scholars agree that the fourth seal occurs during the Great Tribulation. The only thing they disagree with is that the Great Tribulation has wrath, and certainly we've just proven that it does have wrath. Yeah. I think we should clarify something. They say there's no wrath during the Great Tribulation until the rapture. Exactly. Then the day of the Lord starts. And then. And, that, and they distinguish that from the Great Tribulation? They do. Okay, then you're right. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I know. I'm glad you brought it because I, yeah, but you're right. I've, it, it That's my quota to be wrong once a day. That's so right. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just, it, it kind of shocked me too when I was studying the position because you'd think even Great Tribulation sounds kind of wrathful, but nonetheless, that's their position. And, yeah, they all agree on that one. So Now, let me just give you a summary, and then I'll be quiet, and I'll take uh, questions and comments here. Let me give you the summary. So uh, what do we learn? Paul taught about the timing of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. Let me give you the following. Number one, he said that the day of the Lord comes without warning. And I said to you that, that I think that best fits with the 70th week starting. Because when you're inside the 70th week, you know things that occur. 
And remember, the pre-wrath position has the precursor in Revelation chapter 6 that, in fact, the cosmic events of the sun, moon, and stars being affected occur before the day of the Lord. Well, that is a warning. It's a precursor, okay? Um, so I think it best, without warning, occurs at the beginning of the 70th week. Number two, the day of the Lord comes while people are saying peace and safety. Well, we know for sure peace and safety, they're withdrawn by the second seal. Why? Well, because God said they were. <laughs> he said that he removed peace by what? The sword. Remember, the sword is always prevalent in all of God's judgments, and we have that in the beginning and by the second seal. And certainly we have it by the fourth seal because all the, um, all the elements are present. Number three, the day of the Lord comes like labor pains upon the world. Jesus linked these labor pains with the beginning of the 70th week. And even pre-wrath agrees that the Matthew 24, 5 through 7 are all about the beginning of the 70th week. Well, that's where Jesus says these are the beginning of labor pains, Odin. Okay, well, Paul says that 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, that the day of the Lord comes like labor pains, Odin. Isaiah 13, 8, the day of the Lord is like Odin, labor pains. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18, labor pains. Jeremiah 6, labor pains. So again, the day of the Lord comes with labor pains. Number four, the day of the Lord is God's wrath upon the world. God's wrath incorporates sword, which is synonymous with warfare, famine, pestilence, and beasts. The sword is present by the second seal. All four are present by the fourth seal, yet pre-wrath maintains that God's wrath does not come, does not come until the seventh seal. And again, I think that's a contradiction to what the scriptures are saying. Again, at the end of the day, I'm just presenting data. And again, I'm not bad-mouthing anybody in here because, again, this is something that we can disagree over and still be brothers and sisters in the Lord. However, you have to wrestle with the data as you see fit. Now, examine their arguments. I've tried to be faithful to what they have claimed and what they have said, but I think the data clearly shows, in my opinion, that the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the 70th week, not sometime in the last three and a half years. With that, I'll be quiet, and I'll take your questions or comments. Eric, at the beginning you talked about the rehearsal days of the Lord. Would the yeah. destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. be one of those type of rehearsal days? Uh, or a rehearsal? I'm sorry, I thought you said reversal. Yeah, rehearsal? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, in some sense we know that Jerusalem is going to be sacked at the end as well, but it won't be utterly obliterated in the sense that God will fight for them at the last moment, and we know the remnant, that are the believers, will in fact be saved. Okay? So, but yes, that it will be, a, in some sense, it was a rehearsal. Jerusalem again will be attacked. But this time, God will vindicate them, and he'll turn the tables on the enemies that have come to the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Yeah. This might seem kind of silly, but um, I understand the war and the famine and all that, but I don't understand the beasts, the animals. Um, what are they going to be doing? <laughs> yeah, you, I know. you know, it seems to be... What's interesting, just from studying all this, it seems to be a progression. If you have warfare, you end up having famine. And when you have famine, then you end up having pestilence or plague or disease. And it just seems like society goes in the tank and you end up having wild beasts that attack people. And people, some of the imagery is that you have dead bodies that are being eaten by the wild beasts. Okay, so that's a lot of the imagery. But sometimes people are being attacked. They just have no protection. And so it shows an utterly desolate society. Okay, and that's why, but it's interesting, again, in the second seal, what, what's the first thing you see in Revelation 6? It's the sword, it's warfare. And that leads, I think it leads the ball rolling. So you end up getting famine because you have scarcity in the third seal. Then you have all those other things. It seems to flow rather nicely in the sense that it makes sense, not in the, in the sense that it's a nice thing, but you, yeah. 
So that's a good question, yeah. yeah oh, we got one here, Robert. Any thoughts on the pre-trib teaching that uh, the rapture happens on the Rosh Hashanah? The, the, the Feast of Trumpets? Right. I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I just don't know a lot about the... There's a lot of people who make a lot of the trumpets, and I just right. can't always make a lot of them. I, I don't know. I just I wish I could help you, but yeah. And it says it comes without warning. So I, yeah, kind of yeah. Yeah, and I just my ignorance. I just don't know. Maybe there's others out there that can help you with that. Yeah. So, by the way, I, I'm sorry just to interject something. Next week, then, we're going to be getting into the timing of the narrow day of the Lord. We're going to also be studying the cosmic disturbances associated. And I'm going to show you the pre-wrath understanding. There's an interesting passage in Acts where Peter is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 31, that before the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the sun will not, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall, Right. Well, I'm going to show you that that's best seen as the narrow day of the Lord, and I'll, and I'll give you reasons why. So we're going to be focusing in on the narrow day of the Lord. That's the point. And then at the very end, we'll talk about the duration, and we'll talk about the Second Peter 3 passage. So that's where we'll be going to be going next week. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the pictures look very wrathful, so yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I know it's such a beautiful night, and I thank you all for coming out here. I know... Um, you kind of got a data dump, and you got to hear for almost an hour nothing but sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. It's probably very uplifting, I'm sure. But remember, the Lord, uh, the Lord is coming for us. So, yeah, yeah. Thanks, you guys.